All right. Hello, everyone. We're live here with the late morning program with Namras Podcast. This is episode 37. I'm here with Achuta Bhavadas. Achuta Bhava Prabhu, thank you for coming on. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Really excited to uh, hang out with you today. Yeah, no problem. So basically, um, after I did astrology, that astrology podcast, it was like maybe two podcasts back, someone messaged me and said, have you heard of this devotee? And he sent me your name and he sent me your YouTube. And I checked out your YouTube page and it was all about astrology and, and, um, and all things like that. And I, and then uh, after contacting you, I, you mentioned about your journey in Krishna consciousness and spirituality. And I found it super fascinating and I'm so glad you're here. I want to talk about it. Um, so let's, let's just get into the beginning of it. So you're a son of a Christian minister. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I grew up in the United Methodist Church. Um, my dad was a minister here in Minnesota, and we moved around from church to church. Uh, Christian minister families are a bit like military families in that you can get reassigned from church to church and stuff oh, like okay. that. So we moved around a bit in Minnesota, but um, yeah, I grew up, you know, in the church. And from a young age, I'm, re I'm really thankful that I had parents who emphasized love of God at the center of our home and our lives. So wow. um, there's a lot of, there was a, a lot of setup for me eventually to find something like Krishna consciousness really appealing. Um, but, you know, there's a lot of detours along the way, but yeah, I, I grew up a, a, a preacher's kid and and that's a blessing and a curse. You know, you, you get, you you have a lot of insight and knowledge that you develop about the scriptures and spiritual practices and spiritual life but you also feel like you have the liberty to be like a little rebel and <laughs> just sort of do whatever you want and like i, I got into a lot of trouble too <laughs> so. <laughs> so then so then you grew so you grew up in minnesota and then what led you to were you like kind of spiritual as a teenager or college or like how did that work out yeah i mean um again, like I had parents that were very broad minded. So I, I had the Methodist church is a pretty liberal progressive place um, as far as Protestant denominations go. And um, so I took to spiritual life from a really early age and was very enthusiastic about it. Um, I mean, I, I remember, you know, nightly prayers and Sunday school and these things weren't drags for me as a kid. Like I really liked them. Mm. Um I, I especially liked progressive praise and worship. Like I started playing guitar and started playing praise and worship bands and stuff like that. And in, um, in high school and was a part of um, a lot of youth group activities, um, you know, on the state and local level and was um, part of a big youth council on the state level and stuff like that. So, and then I went to a Christian college too, a, a Baptist okay. school and um, I became a, a youth pastor straight out of college um, at a wow. at a Methodist church in Chicago. I worked with kids in a church, and so I, I had a that was like my, my spiritual path was pretty serious. But it was also um, by high school I was starting to go through some really difficult times with it as well. So there there it was not there there were some pretty drastic turns that everything started taking um, like later in high school. Like, like you mean like a philosophical difficulty or like, what was that like? Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, really what happened was my dad, the way that I would describe it. And I think the way that he would describe it too, because I'm, I'm certainly, um, I've written a book about this. I've talked to my dad about it. We still talk about it today. He got, he took a kind of meteoric rise of popularity as a minister and got a lot bigger church congregation and a raise. And we moved from a smaller town in sort of more rural Minnesota to the suburbs of the Twin Cities. And he became quite popular. And um, 
he was a great speaker and teacher. Um, and, um, but what happened was my, you know, my dad sort of took a fall in his faith. Mm -hmm. Um, and I won't go into the details, but he sort of had a, 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 some, some troubles that came up for him, uh, mental, spiritual health problems and, and other things. And it started throwing me for a real, like it started throwing me for a real loop, right? Because my model, right. Is sort of falling down. And, um, and I kind of ran on a parallel track. So I, you know, through college and, um, you know, right out of college, I was a youth pastor right around the time my dad started having kind of a fall from grace. You could say, I sort of took one too. And I had never really gotten so much into partying or, you know, like I had been pretty, all things considered pretty focused on my spiritual life. Interesting. Um, but I, I had gone to a Baptist college. I had been a youth pastor. I'd never really sort of gone off the rails, you know, like I always had had that there. When my dad sort of took a fall, then um, I sort of followed suit. I left my career as a youth minister feeling really philosophically perplexed about whether or not I still wanted to be a Christian. Uh, I was really doubting uh, everything because my of what was happening with my father. And then I took a tumble into like total party scene, total, you know, drugs, sex, rock and roll, the whole, like, I just really took a dive, deep dive into all of that. Wow. And um, I, I know my story is not um, unique. A lot of people go through similar things, but mine was like pretty existential because of how deeply my faith foundation got rocked when my dad took a fall. So uh, that's kind of, that's the next p- kind of pivotal point in the story. Right. Um, we ha- When you were telling me about um, how you took up guitar and like the, the, the hymns and things like that, that there's a church near us that, um, my wife and a few friends went to, it's actually down the road from our temple and, uh, it's called the chapel, uh, on Jacksonville road. We went in there on a Sunday and they had this, they, they were like, are you here for the modern, um, service? Are you here for like the more traditional service? And, uh, we went there for the modern service and they had like a rock and roll band and it was like they were saying praise God and everything. We were like, this is amazing. This is so cool. Like we could totally get into this. Like they were, and they gave us papers that said how, you know, what the words were. And it was basically like love God and serve God and serve people and things like that. And I was just like, if we if we could do this, like put our own spin on it, I mean, it'd be super attractive. But but when you said that, it just reminded me of that um, that chapel that, that we went to. It's such a cool, such a cool way to actually express um devotion to God and, and, but in a way that people can like relate with, you know, that's, is, is that something that you related with when, I mean, you grew up with it, but at the same time, you also probably did that, right? Yeah. I consider like, I consider like pr- progressive modern worship to be the Christian equivalent of like Kirtan. It's very similar, you know, right, in, right. in terms of its mood and its spirit and what it's aimed at. It's, it's aimed at fully surrendering your heart and praise and love to God. And, um, and, and that was what I really, I really loved. Like I, and, and so I've I always had that kind of bhakti spirit because I had a dad who was very charismatic, very much about loving God, very much about that kind of, um, modern worship scene in our churches and stuff like that. So right. like, you know, it was, but again, like, yeah, even that was a huge part of my, my life growing up. But then when, when my dad sort of had this big fall down, it was like just the whole thing kind of crumbled for me. Mm. When so when that happened, so that that kind of um, b- broke your faith. But d- did you still continue to believe in God, or was your like I'm I'm like completely done with this? 
You know, for me, there was a period of time where I wasn't sure. It was never, I don't believe in God. I've never had that my whole life as far as I remember. But um, there was definitely a period of like, there's got to be something more. There's got to be something uh, else. And I was, I mean, I was in my early 20s. And I also, I think, you know, just um, was was looking for something um sometimes i felt also a little stifled creatively philosophically by the church so there was there was that too it wasn't just my father there was also this feeling of like um the universalism that i was craving in other cultures and other places in the world and you know i had i had gone to greece and turkey with my dad to sort of um see the footsteps of paul through the new testament and the greek oh. islands and it was a really cool trip but um you know during that trip, I, it was like kind of the first time for me seeing the world and just being like, yeah, God's got to be a little bit bigger than just this one particular story. And, um, even if Jesus was an avatar, like there's what else is there, you know? And right. so it was, it was, my mind was starting to, I think, question things, but it was also a, a moment of, um, like turmoil for me with my faith at the same time. Right. Right. Okay. And so then, <clears throat> so then after that, what kind of, where did you lead to after your after your kind of crisis of faith? Yeah, I mean, I I took a nosedive into an opiate addiction, unfortunately. Oh, so man. yeah, so I I picked up. It, unfortunately, it happened to me initially, not through really any fault of my own. I mean, I was drinking and smoking and partying here and there, but I wasn't doing anything real hardcore. Right. But then I actually um, I had some health uh, problems come up, and I through one of them I was prescribed painkillers. And then I was, you know, I was, so I was on them for a few weeks and I was, I worked at a restaurant and a lot of the crew at the restaurant, you know, were like college age students or younger people who were partying a lot. And, um, you know, they were like, oh yeah, you know, pain pills are awesome. Like we do them for fun. And I just started, it just, at first it sort of just was like an additional fun, stupid thing to do when, when I was doing all of that partying. Right. But then, um, yeah, I ended up getting a dependency on Oxycontin, which is unfortunately one, it's one of the main drugs that's associated with the opiate epidemic that's been facing us here in the United States over the past couple of decades. And mm. so weirdly, I was kind of at the outset of that epidemic, like uh, th when it was first really get getting traction. Right. And ironically, I was getting my supply mostly um, through stealing them from my grandfather, who was also, he was on them, but he was also addicted to them. Oh, um, so even my, my grandfather eventually in a nursing home had to be weaned off from Oxycontin because he had such a bad dependency. Um, and it almost like from what my dad and family has told me, it's, it almost killed him, um, just to get off from Oxycontin. So mm. there was about a year and a half to two years of my life in my early twenties where I went from like this kind of Christian life to my dad falling down to questioning, to just getting into this really sort of reckless, um, state and and got really sort of uh, unfortunately addicted to opiates at that time wow that must have been difficult uh, i mean wow so then so then after that you it, it, so how did you how did you ultimately get get freed from that or or, or relief from that well this is kind of the fun part of the story right because <laughs> because basically what happened was at that point you know I wasn't like all of a sudden I just became a, a knucklehead who had no interest in God or faith. Like I was still, I was, I was partying, but I was still a pretty thoughtful person. And I had decided I was going to go back to graduate school. So I, I was going back to get a master's degree in, in English and creative writing. And I was, I was still artistic and 
you know, I consider myself at that point, like spiritual, not religious as everyone says, like, but right. Um, and it was around that time that by accident in my experimentation and party phase, I took a handful of mushrooms at a party and someone was like, Oh, you know, have fun with these. And I had smoked maybe some pot at that point or, you know, done something like, but this was like next level experience. And I, um, Thankfully, because I want to say as I go today, because I'm going to talk about some psychedelic experiences, but I want to issue the the warning that I'm not I, I'm not here to try to glorify them, but they right. but there's some important things about them that they did for my my journey, I guess you could say. And the, the first right. thing that they did that night was to rather than having fun or getting high, I was I locked myself into my bedroom at my apartment where I was having a big party. There's like 40 people in my apartment, and I locked myself into my bedroom. And was having a complete existential crisis because I was realizing how deeply I was avoiding the question of faith and God. And I mean, that's what the mushrooms did for me. They were, they, they wow. this mushroom trip was like, dude, you're, you're wasting your life. You're wasting your time. Where, what happened to your faith? And it was weird how it happened because in my room, while I was sort of tripping out, I was looking at a lot of things in my life. Like my cologne was one that really stood out on my desk or my dresser and i was realizing how my cologne choice had been made really drastically and sort of unconsciously as a response to my father's marital infidelity and that i had usually worn the cologne he wore because i i loved him and i just admired him and then i had drastically switched it just looking at my cologne was like this deep healing moment where i was like i hate my dad and i was like oh i did I didn't think I did. I, I've been kind of acting like, oh, it's fine, you know, whatever. Wow. But so there was a lot of things like that. I, I, I was looking at my wardrobe of clothes in my closet and realizing my wardrobe had changed since I started partying and that there was all this hurt involved in my clothing choices. It, it, they, wow. they were, it was such so deeply impactful. And oddly enough, my interest in partying started fading like within weeks after that experience. And I started becoming much more deeply introspective, philosophical, started around that time because I had another friend who was like my best friend since childhood. And he started having some more psychedelic experiences with me. Like we started aiming ourselves at psychedelic experiences and sort of putting aside party drugs mostly. And through a number of subsequent psychedelic experiences with other substances, we basically started saying like, you know, our minds were just being blown. Basically we we're like, wow. You know, we started listening to people like Alan Watts and you know, the, the, the um, people like Joseph Campbell and like, like sort of that, that realm of um, world religions, universality, yoga, like all sorts of things started appearing to us as realities in our heads for the first time. They weren't just concepts. They were, they were coming alive because these experiences were very mind expanding and, um, and, and in many ways, very heart opening and very healing. Mm. There were some really reckless, dangerous experiences that we had too. So we got lucky because some people, these are, it's really the wild west when you're taking psychedelics and people don't always come back. And sometimes people are really damaged by experiences as well. So we, we were very fortunate in that our, our sort of youthful recklessness never really sunk us, but we did have some, my friend and I had some bad trips and we learned from those as well. It, sometime in the midst of all of this, basically what happened was I, I just sort of realized th these substances 
are not for play and that they've been used in these sacred ritualistic settings all over the world, peyote shamans, mushroom shamans in Mexico. And it was just this realization that that these are sacred sacraments for some people in the world. They, they play a specific role and only certain people are really supposed to handle them. Mm. And they're, they're only really used to maybe to help people who are losing something or, you know, but they're, they're like, they're like vision quest tools or something. And we're not using them correctly. And I started reading about different places in the world where you could go and have a sacred guided experience with traditional lineages who work with these in very respectful and almost like religious ways. Mm. And I became completely obsessed with the idea, also thanks in part to my friend who was getting obsessed with this, that it was an experience like this that I needed to like reboot myself after everything that had happened. Wow. And it was ayahuasca in particular that I ended up working with for a long time. But the reason that I also, one of the reasons that ayahuasca was so appealing to me, um, even though I only really kind of had, I really didn't have any idea what I was getting into. But one of the reasons it was appealing is because it was said to be very helpful at helping people kick addictions. Really? Um, Yeah, yeah. Ayahuasca, iboga, there's a few other psychedelics in the world, plant medicines that are specifically um, effective at treating um substance abuse and there was all this there's all this medical research that's been done on it by now too at some really respected you know universities and through you know really respected research doctors in the u.s and there you know so so psychedelics have this this ancient role in many different world religions of being something that can bring you back onto the onto the path if you've lost your way or they can be things that kind of initiate you into a deeper understanding about the cosmos or the soul or reality. And it was that experience that I, that I wanted. And I thought bonus, if it's going to help me kick these bad habits. So that was kind of, that was like the next sort of major turning point. Wow. That that's, that's super fascinating. Um, So it went from the, the, the drug, the opiate addiction to when trying some psychedelic uh, drug and then that kind of opened you up into ayahuasca. So, so is the psychedelic um, drug? It's it's less about the high and more about like uh, another experience. Yeah, I mean, from what I've seen, you know, because I I was around the psychedelic world and culture, immersed in completely immersed in it for like ten years of my life, um, and you know, it was an author that wrote a book about ayahuasca and, 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 you know, spoke all over the country and on different radio programs and stuff like that. And what I, what I've seen about psychedelic culture is that there's basically two different versions of the psychedelic experience that people have. One is not going to distinguish it much at all from any other recreational party drug where people just, they trip out, they get high. Well, that was fun. That was crazy. That was wild. They maybe you know, maybe it has some deeper effects on them, but they're just, they're bracketing it off into like a fun thing that I did amongst the other fun things that I do in my material life. Right. And a lot of people unfortunately think like, uh, and a lot of people think that that's sort of all that it is. Like that, that's like, that's kind of what is just some crazy high. But then there's the second group of psychedelic experiences that I think are actually far more common and pervasive and that's the kind where you're going to start seeing things about the nature of reality, the nature of your mind. I have a list of things that I wrote down just to talk about today that I thought might be interesting. Sure. Um, but 
these psychedelic experiences um that but let's just say more like common ones like lsd or mushrooms or something like that these experiences for many people often open up the reality of the subtle body that there is a subtle oh, body I see. I see they start opening up the reality of and i'm not trying to use that uh, uh, jargon from our scriptures I'm, right. I'm just sort of using it loosely right now right. the um the subtle the awareness of subtle influences um that you are not your body um that there that you are you're always conscious that there that the consciousness is is something that you are and that the body is something associated with it mm. um that there's um that there is such a thing as karma that a lot of it has to do with the power of your thoughts and what and who you associate with in terms of how and why things play out and that there's this kind of cosmic clockwork and laws behind everything mm. all of those things a lot of those things become very so vivid and so felt and so tangible for people that they'll end up describing it as this kind of cathartic spiritually um transformative moment where they, they feel awakened um mm. and a lot of that's just because they're they're seeing things that you know you can talk about philosophically but until you have an actual experience of them for many people it's not going to do the the trick now, I think that there's many ways that people can start to recognize this. I think Krishna consciousness, if you've never had a psychedelic, you know, Krishna consciousness is going to show you these things too, through your mantra meditation, through all different kinds of things that we do. Right. Those same dimensions of reality become available to our, we can understand something of them and our, our teachers and sages and scriptures literally tell us about them. And we, put, mm. we can place our faith in them and simply learn about them that way too. But for a lot of people who not, aren't connected to you know a parampara or a sampradaya, sampradaya or they're they're not from india or they're just they're they're kind of like hobos in the universe right just that the psychedelic experience suddenly is like oh my gosh my gps is on board again and i there's a true north i don't know wow. what it is i don't know where i'm going but i know i'm a spirit soul i know i'm not my body i know there's these subtle dimensions of life i know that there are you know like so so i think that a lot of people have that kind of psychedelic experience. And then, then it becomes a question of like, well, where do you go from there? You know? Right. Um, but yeah, there's, there's so many things that, so I, I started drinking ayahuasca. The, the ayahuasca, if you can compare it is you're, you're taking, it's like compared to say LSD or mushrooms or something like that, or even peyote, um, all of which I had experience with um, at some point during this about 10 year period of my life. But ayahuasca is like, um, it's like a, a cosmic cannon compared to any of them. Really? It's, yeah, it's easily one of the most powerful psychedelics in the world. And so the the kind of state of consciousness that emerges in a six to eight hour, you know, ayahuasca ceremony, you know, in the Amazon, you're ingesting this a drink that's a combination of um, a leaf and a, and a vine and the experiences that you have even compared to these other psychedelics I had done are just like a it's like a totally different ballpark of, of intensity and um, and depth so those experiences were shaping my life for about like 10 years and through those experiences in um, yoga came into my life just like yoga mm -hmm. yoga asana I guess you'd say like studio yoga practice right. meditation and then astrology they all were sort of born out of those experiences i became more serious about them along the way so you're saying you so you're saying that for someone who does not have the concept of like that we're not this body 
uh, or, or the subtle body or karma or something that this, these psychedelic, uh, substances may be able to bring out that in someone. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's a real crapshoot because some people, especially people who may have mental health, like predispositions that aren't favorable to such experiences may actually right. be harmed, not helped. Right. So that's a, and you don't know, like it's a real wild card. It's very dangerous in that respect. I'm really lucky and I hope my kids never do it in some ways, you know, really? <laughs> but like, um, but then there's going to be a class of people who that level of the experience for whatever reason, it doesn't deliver. It's just going to be some kind of high that they have. That's crazy and wild and fun. And things are, kind of like a fun house for five or six hours and then they're just going to write it off as like well I'll never do that again but then there's this <laughs> i think a, a really large group of people know it, it it delivers these insights in experiential ways that you can't ever forget it, it, and that's why aldous huxley talked about the doors of perception like once this door is open you can't ever close it. you can't unsee what you yes. experience what you've seen yes 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 yeah i mean like for people who uh become devotees or become a spiritual, you know, have a spiritual lineage or spiritual activities, and then they go back to kind of their old life. They're, it's like it's like the mafia, you know, like you you know too much, you know, you can't go back to yeah. enjoying like you did in the past. But but that's so interesting about ayahuasca. Like I didn't know anything about it until um, you mentioned it to me, and then also um, I was talking to someone else about it, and they're saying that there's like. Uh, there's like retreats all over the world now. You can go and they'll they'll it'll be uh it'll be like you said, it's a controlled environment. Someone knows what they're doing and everything, and people will have these experiences. And you said that you wrote a book about it. Mm -hmm. So, so yeah. tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, I mean, so one of the things that that really started happening in the ayahuasca ceremonies for me was they started um, but they they one of the things for I should say this first ayahuasca as well as being something that opens these um, incredibly rich doors of consciousness um, is something that also it's a purgative so as you're opening up these doors of consciousness you're you're you can't see them outside of your own personal relationship to what you're seeing right so it's right. going to what you're seeing is going to start addressing your own neuroses your own fears your own lust you know all sorts of things that are just you know that that live in us that are a part of why we're here in the material world you know our 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 karma so to speak and as you see that stuff and and see it so profoundly and so deeply and and sort of cosmically um people will scream they'll vomit they'll go out the bottom i mean that it's it's like it's uh it's like a purgative combined with <clears throat> like a cannonball of lsd it's it's a really really crazy experience but one of the benefits of that experience is that it's not always that crazy, but they can get that crazy, can ramp up that much. But one of the things that's so interesting about it is that you're, as you look at your your life, you have the ability to not just, yeah, it's not like um, getting a massage where you walk away feeling like, oh, that was nice. It's like, it, it, sometimes it's been compared to six years of therapy in six hours where you you get this feeling where yeah like for example you know some of my first ceremonies i was going through living through these vivid visionary landscapes of my father my father's father um the abuse that my father suffered from his alcoholic father my alcoholic father's uh my alcoholic grandfather's 
quitting cold turkey and becoming a born-again Christian, my father trying to follow in his footsteps, becoming a minister, you know, the, the, all these generational patterns and the hurt and, you know, the compassion that you start feeling that starts melting away the resentment or the so many things like that that are coming up and you're, you know, barfing all over the floor and crying. And I mean, it's, it, these are so, these were such powerful experiences that gradually started helping me unpack the limitations of Christianity, my relationship with my father, um, some of the unhealthy doctrines and dogmas that had come into my life through some of the teachings of the Christian church. Not all of them, obviously, but some of them. Right. And as you're doing that, you're also, there's so much more that's happening. I'm seeing like, for example, I had this one ceremony where you get very practical things that can happen. The shamans are are like wizards too. So in one ceremony, you know, I was, um, Basically, uh, I had I had a lot of anxiety, and I used to um, clench my uh, what am I saying? Uh, grind my teeth in right. my in my sleep, mm-hmm. and I had a ceremony where um, the the shaman was they they shake a rattle throughout the whole ceremony called the shakapa, and they're singing what are called ikaros, and these ikaros are uh, they they come, I've actually had one come to me, but they come while you're in the trance of the medicine, these songs come, they're like crazy, like weird melodies. And they, they come and they, they come from plants in the jungle. I know that sounds crazy, but the, the shamans while in trance would every, every plant in the jungle has like music that goes along with it in this, when your consciousness is altered to a certain extent, it's like, you can hear different music coming from plants. And um, the shamans will learn the songs of different plants and every plant will also open up a different dimension of medicine. So they can call in medicines from plants without giving to them physically when you're in the state, just by their songs, their calling cards. Those are called Ikaros. And there's this whole rich literature around all of this too. So I'm not, I can, you can read about it on your own if you want, but. Right. So they're, he's calling in the song and it starts directly going into these weird, almost like, um, like horseshoes that were like, like subtle. I could not physical, but subtle. And they were embedded in my neck and the, the medicine song starts pulling them out of my neck. And I saw in the visionary space that they were connected in through my jaw and through this anxiety thing. And they had, they had gotten there through the types of TV that I was watching. I saw all of that, 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 that the kind of action and the, the kind of anxiety provoking entertainment that I liked had put these weird subtle hooks on my back of my neck and that they were connected to my jaw. Anyway, the shaman pulls all of them out with this song and I'd never grind my teeth again since that ceremony. Like never that I can, th- not that I know of anyway. And it's very noticeable too, because I used to have bad jaw pain in the morning. So there's, they're like, um, their ability to use this technology to heal things is um, really profound and that's why there's also so much um, attention and hype around it right now. Because if you walk into a ceremony like this, I mean, people are being healed of some pretty profound things, not just addiction, but a, a lot of um, very idiosyncratic things that the the shamans are able to address. In that regard, they are thought of in the Amazon like doctors, that, that this is a substance that they use to heal people of things, but it's all being uh, healed on very subtle planes. When, when I first heard someone talk about it it was like okay this is like some psychedelic thing 
So immediately there is some baggage that comes with with this type of thing that it's that it's a uh, that it's a drug and and that we shouldn't do it and 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 people who do it are all bad and things like that. But but from what you're telling me, um, it seems that it's something that was used by ancient uh, people for for as you said as do- acting as doctors to heal people and you know that whole thing with your jaw. That's for super fascinating. Like it was like it was a part. It, it was like basically a part of your subtle body that was affecting your gross body, perhaps. And then the guy that pulled it out and and you know I believe in all that kind of stuff. That's that's uh that's so interesting and and. So people are using it now for for like healing things such as that? Well, it's really complicated because yes, people use it for healing and a great I've seen, you know, I've been in so many over 100 ceremonies, so I I was I saw a lot of people go through a lot of things. I mean, from women who had to I saw a woman one time really have to do some profound healing with her uh family member who she had suffered some abuse from, you know, some real serious abuse from and I mean, you you see people in these ceremonies go through very powerful passages, and they're almost always about bringing forgiveness and love and mercy and compassion to um, themselves or to others, and and to also understand the the subtle links of this activity has created this kind of outcome. And in that regard, people are getting healed all over the place. There's there is, however a problem. And this is, you know, eventually I spent 10 years, but eventually I did say that my time with this um, tradition had reached its limit. There was like an expiration date for me. And I don't condemn anyone who's still involved, but part of what I saw over time was that um, essentially in in a nutshell, people will start this experience alone isn't the answer. It's pointing you to truths about the nature of of reality, of the subtle body. You're not your body, either your spirit, soul, consciousness, um, you know, and all of that is amazing. But then people, people start, um, people started treating the experience itself as though it was going to be the centerpiece of their life. I see. And in in the Amazon, at least in the places that I went, one of the things that I'll never forget was a shaman saying, you know, look. Traditionally, an average person may have ayahuasca once or maybe twice in their whole life during critical times. Oh, I see. This is not like for, it's, there are some traditions that have developed that are much more ritualistic and almost like uh, religious, but you know, this is a, it's like you wouldn't go to your doctor every day just because you liked the medicine, you know, you have to right. be, you know, so, so there's that. And then some different groups have cropped up over time over especially over the last hundred years or so where there there was some infusions especially in brazil between catholicism umbanda and ayahuasca shamanism where you have this weird like um you you have like a, a weird i mean it's just an it's an interesting blend of traditions and I was a part of one of them called the Santo Daime for a while, which is like a, a Christian ayahuasca church, basically. Wow. They even have songs that they sing, by the way. One of well, there's a hymn that we that we would sing or that one group liked to sing in particular while the ayahuasca was going, which is like an Icaro, that they're, they're hymns that they're receiving inspired through the the trance states mm-hmm. that end up becoming like the anchor for the experience psychically. So one of the things that's really interesting is the rattle 
the song that the shaman sings, or in this case, in the Santa Daimi, the hymn that the whole group is singing, they act as an anchor for everybody in the room, uh, like a, almost like a mantra would. Wow. And so everyone's kind of holding on to the words of the song to stay centered in, in this crazy mind space. Um, well, one of the songs that they sing in, in the Santa Daimi tradition is uh, uh, a Har, uh, like a Hare Krishna song. There's a, there's a literal, <laughs> yes, yeah, so uh, really interesting. There's a, there's a hymn <laughs> And there's a hymn to Krishna that came through for someone at any rate. Um, the, but the point is that there are some communities that have cropped up where it's become more religious. And then the, for people who really are looking for that spiritual home, that spiritual center, like many of these retreat centers are becoming at worst cults and, you know, cults of personality, unhealthy stuff going on. And mm -hmm. at best they're becoming like religious substitutes, I would say. Um, and and I, I don't mean to say, I don't mean to discredit anyone or anything. I'm just saying right. um, that they become like people are seeking for something to become every day, right? Not just this incredible altered state experience, but they want, I think it's natural as we know from our own scriptures to want that communion with God every single day, 24 seven, because what can compare to it? So people get a little bit of a taste for that divine presence in ayahuasca too. I mean, there's angels being called upon. You can feel the mercy of, of God in the ceremonies. Many people talk about feeling the presence of God in these ceremonies, wow. but, but, but then, then it, there it is, right? It's like, well, I want that every day. I want that all the time. Mm, and it's, it's, right. natural, it's natural to want that, but is it natural for the substance to be the thing providing that? And, and that's the part right. where I kind of ended up saying, no, it's not, you know? Interesting. Interesting that you said that in the actual traditional way, it wasn't that they would do it all the time. It was just, it was, it was when someone had an issue or someone had a problem or that's when the, they would go to the doctor. It wasn't like an of everyday thing. Is there, is there like a long-term like effect for someone who is doing it regularly? I mean, I haven't like for, you know, for, like I said, for some people, their mental health is not going to, it's, it's not a good match to do something like that at all. It, what to speak of maybe all the time. Um, you know, so I, I think, there's a lot of gray around that issue. But then the second issue, and there's been some real tragic stories of people dying and stuff like that. But oh wow. Um, but those are the exception. Generally it's it's very safe and the places, many places are very respectable and um, you know, you're not going to Burning Man or anything. It's you know what I mean? Like it's it's pretty it's a pretty stable experience and all, all things considered. Um but yeah, the there is um what I want to say is that there's a lot of, a lot of people have very positive experiences with ayahuasca that light, like life changing, yeah. completely mind and heart opening experiences. And so I, I could never, ever, no matter how much I, I realize that, you know, a, a plant is not going to be the final answer that God is the only answer that no matter how I, I can't, I can't say that that is not a, a like just as much of a, a God inspired, um, healing practice as Ayurveda or, you know, acupuncture, or I think there's spiritual sciences out there, spiritual medicines mm. from different parts of the world. And I see this as one of them, even though I think it could be getting twisted or perverted at times. It, you know, it's, it's like, I still, yeah. I can't, I can't ever condemn it because I wouldn't be here without it. So. Yeah. Let's look at some of these comments. I'm glad for this episode. I'm from Brazil and I started my path on ayahuasca and bhakti together. I see how much ayahuasca helped in my path to bhakti and I've seen how many people who turn 
devotees in Brazil turn into devotees in Brazil come from ayahuasca experiences. Very interesting. Uh, from Gopa Kishore, my friend, this is a next level spiritual Joe Rogan episode. Thank you. <laughs> 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 Joe it's like something like that, right? DMT or whatever he calls it. Yeah. Uh, let's see. Uh, Hari Bold, dear devotees, I also drank ayahuasca being a devotee since age 12. I'm 51, started doing ceremonies in Brazil 20 years ago. Wow, very interesting. I appreciate what he's saying. I took it once. It was a very powerful experience. I haven't haven't felt like doing it again, but I'm glad I did. Mm -hmm. Very interesting. Okay, wow. Okay, so, so, so you went to writing a book that was, and you said it was published by Penguin. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Tell us how how did you like get into it so much that you actually wrote a huge you know book on it. Well, um, the book was a memoir. So I had, I'd finished, I'd gone, I'd done an MA in, in creative writing and then I did an MFA in creative writing. And my MFA thesis project was a memoir, sort of a travel log about my experiences, about the visions, about the healing, about, um, and, and really how it had also redeemed. I, I, one of the funny names of a chapter in that book is Exercising Christ from Christianity. And I had the okay. ceremony where I went through what I can only describe as a kind of like possession state with dark energies, entities, and so forth. And I know that sounds really, I'm sure that sounds really crazy to people, but, but um, one of the things that I realized in that is that the energy that I was possessed with were dark energies from the church. Right? So these were like, like condemning, um, like, like just, just sick energies from the Christian fold. Right. And I'm certainly not condemning Christianity at all. I'm just, that exists, I think, in every religious community. There's going to be some pocket of that extremism or that, you know, that condemning spirit. And um, this, but this was something that I had to be, I, basically, like, it was like having to be exercised from unhealthy elements of Christianity. And that was, that was such a profound experience because, um, yeah, like I said, it was almost like I had to be, I had to find a Jesus that was bigger than the Christian institution. Mm. And to me, this was like one of the most fundamental experiences that I had. And that was sort of at the center of the book. The, the book is called um, Fishers of Men, the Gospel of an Ayahuasca Vision Quest. And it was sort of uh, just, it was a book that was talking about this healing because what, what ended up happening was my dad ended up going down to the Amazon and drinking ayahuasca. Oh, wow. Right. And, and he had some healing experiences he ended up after those experiences, uh, leaving the Christian church and then going and doing a PhD in um, archetypal psychology with studying Carl Jung in particular. So wow. yeah, my dad and I had this parallel track of healing. And interestingly, during that time, my, my grandfather also had a nervous breakdown. So there was like this intergenerational dialogue between me, my dad and my grandpa that was all happening at the same time that I was you know, going through these experiences, my dad went down and had them. So the book was, is basically a memoir about that sort of the, the line of healing that happened at that time in the way that I was sort of, in order to really bring Jesus in my heart, I had to sort of be released from the church. Mm -hmm. Now, you know, one of the crazy experiences that happened in there was um, that I had this vision of Jesus as like a yogi. And it was just, it was a vision. I had no prior thoughts. I hadn't been watching any crazy Jesus goes to India documentaries or you know, <laughs> there was nothing like, there was nothing like that. I was just sort of like, okay, you know, um, I saw Jesus basically sitting in a meditation posture wow. in, in a vision. 
And this was one of many, uh, lots of different types of, ex- you know, visions that I had that started like one time in a ceremony, I, I was really peeling out, like just really, I felt like I was, you know, you, you often feel in these ceremonies, like you've just completely lost the plot. Yeah. And, um, I, I found myself crossing my legs and taking a mudra in, and I didn't, I, it was, you know, just touching my fingers together. Like, uh, let's see if I show it on the camera like that or something. Right, right. And, and I was, but I was doing it unconsciously, you know? Wow. And then I, I suddenly, I realized like, I think these are like Hindu, like, you know what I mean? Like my brain didn't have the language yet for it, but it was like, right. I think this is yoga. <laughs> <You> know, like, <laughs> uh, somehow like these are yogic things. So that was, and another thing that I had happen was during a ceremony one evening, you know, I was basically, I knocked over a cup of water and my hand was resting in the pool of water and I was very unconscious of it. And the moon was streaming in and I had this entirely like lunar themed visionary landscape open up. And I, and I was like, why is this? What, where am I? Why is this all here? And then I realized my hand was in the water, the moon was streaming in and I was unconscious of it, you know? And then simultaneously I started seeing astrological imagery like all over the crab cancer, the glyph for cancer that I had seen in magazines, you know? And that was one of my, and then I realized like, Oh, I'm a cancer. Right. And then I I started having all these insights about myself that were related to the astrological symbolism of the moon. And so anyway, all of those experiences, it was experiences like that little by little that started opening me up to, you know, yoga and astrology, which along with writing the book about all these experiences started taking sort of center stage in my life. So after, after you had, you know, done ayahuasca and that whole thing. And you were like, okay, this is opening me up to something else. Did you, did you open, were you open to like, okay, Christianity is, is I'm going to re re um, introduce myself to that. Or was it that, okay, there's something more than this that I want to experience. Well, so was it, essentially what I'm asking is, was, did you go back to the Christian roots or did you go to something else? Yeah. Yeah. Great question. No, I couldn't go to something. I couldn't go to back to Christianity is, the, is what I mean. Um, okay. Even though it was like Jesus had never become more real and important to me, but I also felt like Jesus gave me some kind of cosmic or more global passport spiritually and was like, there's a lot more out there. You, you need to go check things out because, you know, here I was just introduced to this shamanic technology from the Amazon that was like, what is this? This is crazy, you know? And and then I'm 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 like all right well you know I've got a there's yoga there's meditation there are all sorts of techniques of ecstasy that shamans and mystics all over the world have used and probably the most powerful within the Christian tradition aren't even really talked about or at least we're not talking about why we're we're doing them like yes we engage in worship of God and in and of itself that is good but there's no spiritual science in Christianity, really. You know what I mean? Like, and and I needed to understand more. I mean, I, I was kind of on a Gyani train at this point, I would call it now, you know, just like, give me some understanding, give me some knowledge, stuff like that. I, I actually made a list that I think <clears throat> you guys might like hearing. Please, please. Yeah, so these are different things that came up that started pushing me toward the need for a spiritual science that would eventually lead me to bhakti. One was that... Um, that gross, subtle distinction. We've talked about that already, right? The other was like mind manifestation that what you, where attention goes, energy flows, as, as my guru sometimes likes to say, or like the idea that, you know, what you associate with 
both mentally and physically will shape your reality and your karma will come as a result eventually. Right. Um, I'm, I'm an eternal being. I'm a spiritual being. I have a body, but I'm not this body. Um, so those were the, some of the kind of things, but then there were these really important turning points for me later, like six, seven years into all of this that started happening. <clears throat> so one of them is that I started realizing that the spiritual world that I was seeing is not really, it, I don't, I'm not, not sure about this, but this is how it appeared to me. The spiritual world is not really any different from the material world. It's just an extension of it. So in other words, I'm, maybe I'm not looking at the spirit world. Maybe I'm looking at a subtle dimension of the material world. Mm. And I started wondering, is there something beyond this material world? And the reason that I started wondering about that is because one of the things that started bothering me is that you see, I, I see myself going back to the altar of this experience, like over and over again, drinking this beverage and the emphasis, the in all of these groups that we're drinking regularly is the cleaning has to continue. The purification has to continue. The clearing of karma has to continue. And I had this insight in a ceremony once where I just said, karma is without beginning or end. Like there's no, this, you can't get to the bottom of this guys. We're not, we're it's like what this is exposing us to is beautiful. But I just started really questioning whether there was ever any end to what you could excavate psychically and try to clean or purify. It wow. just seemed to me like there were, it was actually never ending. Um, and then I, around that same time that I was really like, okay, wait a second, because here you, I mean, let me just put it this way. It was kind of like, I became acclimated to that environment, just like you would, if you're in New York city for the first time, you live in Jersey, so it's close by. Yeah. I live, I lived in New York for a few years, but you go to New York City and you're just completely overwhelmed. It's like a completely another world. Yeah. So many languages and people and, you know, it's so, it's so sprawling. So, but then you get acclimated to it, right? And then you're like, yeah, it's just another part of the world. So these experiences suddenly for me just became like, okay, so there's just also this subtle dimension to life in the cosmos and I'm getting acclimated to it like New York City. But I'm wondering if there's really any point here. You know, like, you know what I mean? Like, okay, so just like New York City in the in the material world, in the gross world, everyone's going around doing stuff and there's all sorts of journeys and trips that people are on. And it's, you know, it's like an endless choose your own adventure book. But I'm, I'm now just on the subtle level of that. And all these people who are saying, you know, hey, keep drinking this, keep cleaning, keep cleansing. There's something about this that is trying to take the place of of some kind of religious connection that we're looking for, some kind of some connection that goes beyond all of this. And it goes beyond even the merits that we gain through cleaning ourselves or the merits that we gain through developing knowledge with this drink or it goes beyond all of that. And I don't know what it is, but it's starting to feel like Zen or yoga or you know, so it's starting to feel like something else. Wow. And um I started asking, I said, you know, I'm not concerned anymore with how to fix my material karma because I'm starting to realize that there's an endless mountain of it that I couldn't ever, I can't ever accomplish, which means I must need grace or which means there must be something beyond all of this, even the subtle dimensions that I'm being exposed to. And, um, you know, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm kind of left with feeling like, well, I've got some really important realizations from this, but now it feels like I need a practice that's really going to um, sort of take me beyond the, the endless work of trying to earn or 
do something, you know, get something done or know something or achieve something through spiritual merit or something like that. It just, and it felt like there's, there's frankly, there's like a lot of machismo around it as well. Like, you know, kind of, it's like spiritual power lifting or something to go through so many ceremonies and, you know, you, you, you know, and I think, so I think I started getting turned off by a lot of that. Mm. And, um, I, I felt like I needed to change. Sorry to interrupt you. So you're saying when you're saying spiritual powerlifting, you're saying that the 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 drink was creating like this kind of uh, feeling that it was just it wasn't going anywhere uh, further. Yeah, I mean, every time I would drink, don't get me wrong, there would be mind blowing insights and revelations about behaviors or insights that are very subtle into the nature of like behavior and consequence and things like that. So you get a lot of insight about how to lead almost like a sattvic life. And that would never, but my insight was like, there'll always be an insight. There'll always be a new thing to do or accomplish karmically because right. it's got no beginning or end. That was, that was right. really the insight, right. you know? What you're saying, okay. Wow. Yeah. And at that time, at the, about the same time that this was starting to develop, I read the Gita for the first time. And wow. yeah, it was my very first time. And I, I didn't read um, Prabhupada's edition. I read, um, I don't remember whose it was, but one of the verses that I came across that like, it was, it just hit home so hard was when Krishna's talking about those who drink the Soma. Oh. And right and he he says you know like basically if i'm if i'm gathering this correctly please correct me if i'm wrong but you know people who drink this will be elevated to the heavenly planets but after their pious credit runs out they'll, they'll fall back down right 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 and it was like the only thing i can compare it to uh, like, like ayahuasca is like a a a cosmic you know um extreme sport of of an altar call you get up there you go you completely lose your mind you come out feeling deeply purified but then like i said you could just endlessly do that like i had kids in church when i was a kid every wednesday night at youth group they would come up and ask jesus to save them again you know just like an, every single week there was a new altar call and of course it was it was comedic because you're like well once you're saved, you're you're saved, and then you're supposed to just take up the 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 work of your faith life. But people would keep coming up for the for the altar call because they they would be addicted to the catharsis emotionally of going up to the altar. Mm. And same thing was there, at least for me. I was developing this with ayahuasca, which was like, oh, get me to the altar again. Let me, you know, blow up my heart and mind and and whatever. And yeah, it's just like that was not uh that was not cutting it. And I I realized that like I can elevate really high with this drink, but without connection to God in my life every single day, mm. I'm going to fall right back down and be like, okay, I need to go to the altar again. You know? And it's wow. like, there's gotta be something more than that process, whether it's the mental or the, the merit base, let me earn something, let me climb my way up. And so I, I, the Gita just totally convicted me on that verse. That one was just like, I couldn't get it out of my head. That's so fascinating that you came to that conclusion after after doing this for a number of years. That's the conclusion you came to. Mm -hmm. uh, it's interesting. Maybe people might not even come to that conclusion. They'll just kind of keep going through it. And, and you're like you're saying, have to keep continually going back to the the altar. Um, what what was your friends like? Your your friends at this this point in time? What were they thinking? 
in the sense of like you come from a background of like very traditional Christian minister's son and stuff, and now you're going into something completely <laughs> like like off the rails, like not in a bad way. I'm not saying in a bad way, but it, yeah. like it's so different from that. So what was your experience like with your association at the time? Yeah, yeah, great question. I mean, uh, there was a number of people in my life who thought I had completely like lost the plot. Like they were, you know, serious, yeah, like seriously worried about me. And my, but thankfully, you know, my parents weren't, they were really, because I was coming home sober, lucid, um, committed to my schoolwork, you know, achieving well, like I was winning awards in school for my writing and like, like right. I, I was doing very well and, and they saw that I was doing well and they listened to me, which was really nice. And then my dad actually went and had the experience. My sister went and had the experience too. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, our family really did a lot of healing on, on some levels through these experiences. So I always had the support of my family, which I'm very thankful for. Um, and you know, I, I, certainly like my social life basically just changed to people that I wanted to hang out with were people who did yoga, people who were interested in, you know, spiritual topics. And, um, you know, I met some people along the way, like there's definitely like almost like a, a mad hatters, uh, section of the psychedelic community. So there's some real crazy people that were really fun. And like, I'm really thankful for, even though they were, you know, just, I'm, I'm still a little concerned, but, <laughs> but you know, yeah, it was it was a pretty wild uh, experience socially. Wow. So then, so then, um, from from your introduction to yoga and Bhagavad Gita, tell us a little bit what happened after that. Well, um, I mean, that was about the time that yoga started becoming a really, really regular part of my life. First, it was like Ashtanga a little bit, and um, like um, what do you call it, um, Bikram's hot yoga, you know. Stuff right. like that, and just experimenting meditation, and and um, I th I think you know I I would go see like Ama the hugging saint when she came to town, and just like I just kind of looking for my path, you know, like right, right. where do I land in all of this? And to be honest, I had a real pretty deep sense of like imposter syndrome, both from ten years in experiencing in other cultures with ayahuasca, and then now in yoga, it just also felt like. There were times where I felt like maybe I should just go back to Christianity because at least I kind of know my way around in a in a cultural sense. Right. But I just kind of kept going. I met my wife um, in 2010 and um, in we got together and she was in the process. She was managing a yoga studio. I ended up managing a yoga studio in New York. Um, I was a social worker for a little bit while I was in New York City. And then I was... Um, that was crazy too. I worked with schizophrenics for a while, schizophrenic adults, um, while I was in the process of drinking loads of ayahuasca. And um, they were some of the most like important teachers in my life too, the clients that I worked with. Um, just what's the connection? Tell us about that. Yeah. I mean, they, sorry, it was kind of a tangent, but they, they, yeah, they, they were like, um, I mean, these were schizophrenic adults who, um, you know, were living in a Franciscan run residence home in Manhattan. So my bosses were Franciscan monks, which is really cool. Just getting to hang out with Franciscans all the time. And then my clients were people who, you know, had been oftentimes really traumatized and then had a, maybe had a break, but they were not, not, we didn't have any of the, in our residence home, any, any of the type that were violent or had a history of any of that, mm -hmm. but they were, um, I, I led meditation groups. I was kind of an art and activities therapist. I spent a lot of time with them and, um, 
I just feel like it was a time in my life where I could have very easily been um, seduced by some of the popularity that was like, I had a book coming out and so forth, but the level of suffering and um, mental fragility that they, that I had to work with them every day. I think it really kept me, it was like an anchor that kept me home in compassion, faith, service. I had my Franciscan bosses. Like I'm, I, I was really lucky that I had that during that time. Anyway. Um, so I forget where we were going now. Sorry. <laughs> it was, it was, um, how, how, how did you go from reading the Bhagavad Gita and what happened to that? So you were saying that you were in New York and you met your wife and yeah. you, were, you were, um, the yoga teacher, uh, yoga, uh, managers. Yeah. I was helping manage a yoga studio. I got, I was served the eviction notice, but, and then I was, so I was on, on, I was collecting unemployment. My book came out. I, I, right during that time, I started my astrology practice and, um, then during the first six or seven months of my astrology practice, I met my wife and my wife was starting a yoga studio in DC and asked, you know, we were trying to decide, was she going to move up to be with me in New York? Or was I going to move down to be with her? And I decided that a yoga studio would be a really good place for me to develop and, and build my practice as an astrologer, since that's what I was starting to do full time. So I got in on opening a yoga studio with my wife and one more of our friends in the DC area. And, um, <laughs> the long story short is that our, we had a yoga teacher training program Okay. and our, my wife was longtime friends with a yoga teacher in the community who came in to teach the yoga philosophy portion of our YTT program. And, um, he was a devotee, longtime senior devotee. So, right. uh, that, and th th to be honest with you, when I first met him, I was like very triggered by him. You know, I was like, just the, the, cause I just, it was, he was really strong in his faith. He really knew his stuff. And mm -hmm. I was like, I just was kind of jealous and a little threatened and like, yeah, I'm not sure about this. And <laughs> isn't he like a Hari Krishna? Like, uh, you know, like I'm, I was very skeptical or whatever. And when we would just two, three blocks from our house where the yoga studio, we had the yoga studio in a big house. It was a home-based studio and it was kind of a boutique -y little place. And we would walk down town to Silver Spring. And on the corner of the plaza, downtown Silver Spring, there was always a group out on Harinam. And for the first couple of years, whenever we would walk by, I would be really mad. Like, I would be like pissed off. I would be like, they're turning yoga into a cult. Like, I would, I would be so, wow. so, I would be so angry about it. And then this Hare Krishna teacher, you know, on our yoga teacher training staff bothered me at first too. And my wife was like, I think they're delightful. Like, what's wrong with you? Like, you're such a curmudgeon. Like you're, you know, you, you know, whatever. And interestingly, my wife was also, she went to some ceremonies with me. She was like, this is amazing. This is incredible. She's an herbalist. So she had a real appreciation for plant teachers. Right. Like, but like, if you're, if we're going to have kids and we're going to have a life together. I don't yeah. want to do this all the time. And I don't want you doing this all the time. Like once in a while. Okay. So that was a big impetus for me too, because I realized like, she's a very healthy person. She has a really strong daily yoga practice. She's like, she's a very sattvic person, mm -hmm. very clean living. And like, this is the kind of woman that I want to be with. You know what I mean? Right. And, and then this is, this is happening as I'm like tr starting to turn that page, reading the Gita being like, I think this is not ultimately going to take me where I want to go. So that's kind of how it happened. And then, you know, one, one thing sort of led to another, uh, we had kids after having a kid and becoming a dad, I, I realized that, um, you know, there was some need for like a, a daily spiritual practice in my life that was going to replace, because ayahuasca was now out of my life for a couple of years. Wow. And I was feeling really like, like 
adrift. Like I have had these amazing experiences. I don't know how to ground them. I don't know how to integrate them. I'm not going to go back to Christianity. Like, where is it? And I remember specifically because my daughter was born and I was sitting outside on my porch in tears because I felt like such a terrible dad. I felt like totally adrift spiritually. And I said a prayer and I'll never forget it. I just, I prayed to God that I would have a real spiritual teacher come into my life that could help me find a path. So I told my wife about the prayer, like maybe a, the na- that night or like the next night or something. And she was like trying to pump this teacher from our YTT program to me who had a new book out. Um, and I don't know if you want me to mention it or not. Yeah, 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 you can. So it's called In Search of the Highest Truth. And it's a, a book written by a devotee named Hari Kirtan. And um, so she said, I just got a copy of Hari's new book. Like, why don't you check it out? And I was like feeling so above that and still had this like old agitation about the Hari Krishnas and stuff. And she just, but the way she looked at me and the the depth of, of sort of despair that I felt like I need something to like anchor me again. And it's not going to be ayahuasca. It's not to be Christianity. So I picked up, I read his book and there was one passage in the book that there was a couple. One was sort of pointing to this idea that karma is endless and you're never going to solve your problems with karma by doing more things. Right. And then the other one was that God is a person. Because that was the first time in all new age speak that I'd ever heard someone go back to my Christian roots and say, you need a personal relationship with a personal God. It was the one thing that I didn't like about any kind of Eastern mysticism that I had found was that there was this diminishment of the personal God. There was like, oh, it's white light. It's the ground of being. It's this. And I just was like. I don't know. I, I equate it with like people who would walk into our yoga studio sometimes and just want to like hold my hands and eye gaze and like merge into one another. And I was just like, I'm not, I'm not into it, you know? Right. So th- somehow this came to me, this passage was about how God is a person and it was yogic and it was spiritual science going on in this book. And I was like, I told my wife, I got done reading it in like two days. And I, I told my wife, I was like, I have been completely wrong about Hari Kirtan. I may be completely wrong about the Hari Krishnas. And I'm, I have to talk to Hari. So I called him up and I was like, Hari, you know, uh, is there some way I can study with you? He, he did private yoga teacher trainings to like uh, take you from your 200 level training to your 500. So I signed up for that with him, not knowing what I was getting into, just knowing like he wrote this book. I trust him. And, And so I started studying with him and I would once a day, I would go to his apartment in DC and I would sit with him in his, in his studio apartment, like on these little cushions. And he just straight up started teaching me Bhakti like once a week for eight hours. We just, it was him and I and Bhakti and that was it. And then the end, this is the crazy bear with me for just one more moment. Please, please continue. This is amazing. I love this story, right? It's so much fun. So at the end of it, this year of study together, I had been invited to speak because this time I'm now seven years into a full-time astrology practice. Um, And so that's my full-time job. I had been invited to speak at an international astrology conference in Calcutta. And I told Hari, I was like, what should I do while I'm in India? And he was like, (laughs) well, um, I'm going to be actually in India um, around the same time. And Calcutta is not far from this place called Mayapur, which you could learn more about Bhakti in. I was like, oh, cool. So let's meet up in Mayapur. So I just met up with him in Mayapur with he and his wife. And um, turns out that one of my astrology colleagues that I had become friends with during that same year 
was a devotee from Hong Kong and I didn't know it. So we ended up becoming friends. He ended up meeting us in Mayapur and I just got my lid totally flipped in Mayapur. <laughs> like that was crazy. Awesome. It was the best experience of my life, you know, just blown away. I was like, I was there a couple of days before you know it. I'm like, they had the deities going out with the elephants, you know, around. The, I was out like dancing in the streets, like Hare Krishna, the top of my lungs. Like it was crazy. I was like, and I'd never even been to the temple back home yet. You know, like I hadn't even gone to the temple. So it was, but Mayapur was so contagious. And it was like, it was like the Disney world of the spiritual universe. So I just. I had, what a story. Oh my God. That yeah. is amazing so there's a few things i want to talk about um but but i'm just reeling from the story that's that's so awesome so so basically um you were doing astrology in, during this whole time how did you how did you get into astrology and and like study it and everything because i know you do that full time and that's like your and that's like you you've been you read like 10,000 uh uh charts since then and think tell us a little bit about that 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 uh well, I mean, I was, like I said, my first inklings about astrology, other than being exposed to random stuff here, there growing up was in ceremonies where I started basically understanding that there is such a thing as karma, that the, the planets are intimately involved with the like administration of karma, um, that they're like uh, signs of the changing of energies karmically in the universe. And so that realization came through the ayahuasca ceremonies and then studying it was, you know, a matter of pure, purely just having been bit by the bug. I just started studying it, everything. Now, this was Western astrology. So, oh, okay. I studied, yeah, ancient. Well, there's a lot of people don't know this um, because um, yeah, there's there's not a ton of really good education about these differences out there. But so I studied ancient, I, eventually now I, I practice ancient greek astrology oh. ancient greek astrology is is basically a, a mirror of vedic astrology they're very very similar there's some big differences too but they're oh. very similar in terms of the house system they use these different zodiacs often sometimes not uh, but there's a huge amount of like um exchange in the early centuries of like the last millennium bce from the uh the babylonian occupation of persia in like the middle of the first millennium bce becomes this melting pot for um uh astrologers from all over the world to kind of come together and right. you see this big uh e exchange that leads to um horoscopic astrology both in greece and in india and there's there's, there's this great exchange and so ancient Western astrology is not the same as sort of modern Western pop astrology, which a lot of people rightly, once they get into Krishna consciousness will be really turned off by because they want to learn about spiritual science. But the ancient Western um, astrology is just as technical and sort of rich as Vedic astrology is. So eventually my path led me to study that form of astrology. Um, so, and, and one of the reasons, because I, I, did so much work and and developed classes and you know a presence in the industry with this particular form of astrology that even when I came to Krishna consciousness I was like I'd love to take a turn and look at Vedic astrology and like maybe I could take it up because it, it might be more parallel to what I'm now committing my life to right um, but you know a, a number of my teachers really said you know that's not necessary you can bring God consciousness into what you're doing with with Western astrology and just focus on that. So, so you do charts based on, on, on Greek astrology, and that's very similar to Vedic astrology. So is it, 
it, does it do the same thing? Does it tell you, like, you know, Prabhupada said, if 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 it's going to rain, you know to bring an umbrella. Does it do that kind of whole same thing, like predicts things and, uh, pr you know, prashna and things like that? Is oh, it yeah. Yeah, for sure. Like, for just a few examples from my practice. Like, I can use horary charts. I've helped farmers locate missing animals with horary charts. Or I can help, you know, predict, say, for example, yesterday I helped a woman who said, was wondering whether or not the deal that she was going to she's proposing a deal to buy a house. And I said, oh, he's going to reject your deal. And that's what happened today. Like it's, it's highly predictive, highly specific, just like Indian astrology. Wow. Modern astrology in the West tends to be a lot more psychological in nature. It's about like behavior. It's kind of like a, an elaborate astral Myers-Briggs. Mm. But the ancient version of astrology is going to be more of that kind of karmic predictive science. That's like, yeah, here's what's going to happen around this time you know, health is going to be problematic for this period, watch for these days, right? Stuff like that. And that's how I see it too, as, as Prabhupada said, is like, we're all already, you know, we're so we fall, we can fall prey to Maya like every single day. So if you know the movements of the Maya weather every, every day, it mm. can do, it can really do nothing but help you stay centered. If you're looking at it from the perspective of, of, you know, I'm trying to stay centered every day in Krishna consciousness, then knowing what the karmic weather is like. And because the planets, right, even in Indian tradition, as they are in the West, they have two functions. They're, they're like grahas, like they can grab you. Right. Or graha can mean to grasp, to understand, to see clearly. So, right. and the same things were said for the stars in Greek, planas, planes aster, a wandering star, which could mean a false teacher exploiting aimless people, or it could mean something that that helps guide us through the, the perils of destiny. And I think that's, if you're using it in that way as a, a kind of map to help you walk through the karmic world, as your focus is God in your heart, um, then I think it's a great ally, just like Ayurveda is. Wow. That's fascinating. That's so, that's so, do you provide like, like in my previous ones with another astrologer, he was saying he does provide some kind of like uh, life coaching in, in accordance, like with your astrology, do you do some, some kind of service like that? I mean, it's hard because it's it's really tricky. I'll be honest and say that, you know, because like the work that I was doing with ayahuasca, where you're trying to clear and fix and modify troubling karma, um, a lot of people that come in for astrological guidance are looking for that. How do my love life get better? How does my money get better? How do I like yeah. my body better or something like that? And yeah. it's really hard because they're not necessarily paying me to sit down and say, just chant Hare Krishna and be happy, you know? Um, but that's kind of the only thing that would really actually help. So it's walking this fine line with trying to give people useful tools for what I would say is just like bringing their life to the sattvic level, like right. cleaner, pure, and, and then trying to just implant little seeds of like, have you ever tried mantra meditation? You know, like where I can just dropping in the idea that the, the, cleaning up of your karma is one part, but then you need something every day to commune, you know, with God in the, in the heart, so to speak. And right. I kind of, I kind of nudge people in that direction, but it's really tricky because I can't be too overt about it and trying to respect that some people will get totally turned off if I come right at them with like, Oh, all you need is God, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, going, you know, to, to your, back to your, uh, spiritual, you know, um, path to Krishna consciousness. So, so, after you met Harikirtan Prabhu and you, you know, you talked to him and you got into that. So 
what led you more to, you know, really committing yourself? I mean, you're initiated and, and all that. So tell us a little bit about f- further from meeting Hari Kirtan. Yeah, I mean, it's all Mayapur, man. That's how I feel about it. It's like wow. I, I was the last day that Hari was in Mayapur with me. He said, you know, he gave me some instructions about like what to do because I was going to be there for a few more days by myself. And he like oh. told me some cool things to do. And and I was wandering around looking for more classes on the Bhagavatam because I really liked sitting in on those classes in the morning, you know, in the temple. I was just so into it. Yeah, yeah. And I'd been reading that, but Hari had me reading the Bhagavatam back home already too. So, um, and uh, then basically what happened was the the last, uh, the Hari left. And then that night after they left, I was kind of wandering around and I was like looking for a class and I asked this devotee if there knew of any classes going on. She was like, yeah, go over to the Vaishnav Academy or somewhere kind of over in that area. Yeah. And I ended up wandering around and I wandered into um, um, Vaisheshika Maharaja's, uh, one of his classes. Right. And I didn't, I didn't know who he was. I didn't know anyone, you know, and I sat in on it and it, I don't remember anything he said. I just remember the kirtan at the end. Oh. Like the kirtan really, really connected to me. Anyway, so I go home and I had just, it, was, it had all been out of mind for a while. And then I just couldn't get the, that kirtan out of my, um, you know, just my memory. And so I decided to look on YouTube and I typed in um, Mayapur and, and like uh, the date that I knew I was in his class. And sure yeah. enough, someone had a video up of that class. Wow. And then I was able to figure out who he was. And then I started like, I started listening probably like, you know, everything else that I would normally take in for podcasts was replaced by listening to his talks for like the next several months. And then, yeah, I think it was probably about a year later after listening to his talks and being like online in all of his classes and, Mm. and so forth that I, um, you know, I took, took shelter and started aspiring with him. Amazing. Amazing. And then that time I was going to the temple back home stuff like that too. Okay. Okay. Uh, let's look at some of these comments. Um, okay. Here that's fascinating as a tradition matures and its members study and broaden and explore, including a reflective self-critical approach. Then it becomes more appealing to intelligent people and a picture that's more black and white develops great conversation. Thank you for that comment. Nice. Um, Loving the connection back to Bhakti. Thank you for sharing. It's from my friend, uh, Rajabhumi. John V. Harrison says, loving this. So fascinating. Kaylee Kanana Das. This is proving wonderful insight. Let's see, any questions here? Oh, this is a funny one. This is from my friend, Kalba Riksha. Namaz, tell me when you're ready. Your first ceremony. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, okay. Um... There's a ton of comments, so I'm just going through them here. Oh, okay, please let us know how to get this book. What's your probably? What's the name of your book again? Yeah, it's called um, "Fishers of Men: The Gospel of an Ayahuasca Vision Quest," and it was published by Tartar Penguin in 2010. You can pick it up on Amazon. Um, I'll put yeah. it in the comments later uh, that we can we can uh, look there. Uh, okay. This has to be my favorite podcast episode so far. So, so fascinating. I agree. This is a very, very fascinating. I remember I had um, a vision that was like almost like a precursor to the Gita and to Bhakti philosophy. Then I wrote it down because I thought you guys might like to hear it. Yes, please, please. Okay. So 
there was this vision that I had in a ceremony one time where <clears throat> I was, tr tr again, I was contemplating like there's this kind of never ending, never beginning um, karmic realm that we're, and I'm in it somehow. Mm -hmm. And I saw the realm itself in this image as a, like as a gateway. And it was like, a, there was like a stone, it was like a stone door. And it, it was almost like entering into a cave and it was, it was clearly dark and ominous. And there were these red letters on the door, like engraved into the stone. And I, I had this understanding um, that if you go into this cave, you're going to go into a, a realm where basically you get to have an experience of what it's like to be separate from God or, or at least be temporarily under the illusion of being separate from God. Mm. And that that's what it meant if you were going to go through this door. And on the door, when I looked at the red letters and was trying to understand what they mean, my my name, my given name, Adam, was on the door. It was so it was like so biblical that it almost made me puke. It was just like so it was so intense, right? And I was like, oh my God, it's my name. I'm I'm like such a heavy and that was one of the times I realized like what a heavy name it is to be named after a biblical character and be <laughs> So anyway, <laughs> then I, I'm like, I'm, I feel if nothing else, I was joking with my guru, Dave, and I was just being like, it's so nice to have a name that's not weighed down by the sins of the world. <laughs> I'm just playing. But anyway, so then I, I was thinking like, well, why would God, I, as I was seeing this door and my name on it in this like world that you could go into this karmic world, I was like, well, why would God make this world? Like, why would it even be there? Mm -hmm. And then I had this weird flashback memory vision of um, the Empire Strikes Back uh, Star Wars series. Yeah. Where Luke, Luke Skywalker has to descend into this cave and it's a cave of darkness. And Yoda says like, don't bring your weapons with you. But he does. And he goes down there in the cave, like with fear and anxiety. And he, Darth Vader shows up. He ends up fighting Darth Vader. And when he kills him and his, the mask comes off Darth Vader, he sees a picture of himself. Mm. So this memory came up and it was this picture of like, uh, going into the cave to um, face and realize your own shadow. And that that's also a part of what this world was about, at least according to this vision that I had. And then I, I said like, well, wh why, why would we want to meet our shadow? Like, why would we ever want to do that? And I got this feeling of like, it, there's a, there's a, there's a reckless lust and curiosity behind it. That's not good. But then there's also this grace and mercy that comes to us in this world where we walk through all of these experiences and these illusory experiences of being separate, of being our own little lords over creation. And that um, ultimately, when we start to come back to our senses, come back to our true nature and choose God and choose love, this experience is actually can actually be an aspect of how love intensifies and deepens or that how love is revealed in a new way or a different way. So this is kind of really merciful understanding that started coming into this vision. And this was well before I had ever understood any of the philosophy of bhakti. So I always thought that was kind of a cool vision. Yeah, I mean, this is very similar to, to you know, what's taught. Amazing. Let's look at this comment. My resistance to, to the drink is the idea that it's some sort of shortcut, even though Although the holy name is our medicine and actual shortcut, maybe speak a little bit about that. I think we, I think you, you, you touched on that. I mean, you spoke about it. That it's not you. You, you felt that there was something more than uh, there has to be some, you know, regular communion with God, as opposed just to like 
feeling it when you did ayahuasca. Yeah, for sure. Okay. Uh, thank you, Achuta. I really appreciate your videos. I grew up with a strong bias against astrology because of how deterministic it felt, but beginning to see it more as a guiding science and your channel has been such a light this past year. And Nam, your podcasts are a breath of fresh air, every single one of them. Sending you lots of prayers and love from Vrindavan. Adesham. Thank you, Ricky Kumar. Appreciate it. Um, I love you sharing your journey to Tababa Prabhu. How can we relate Vedic astrology with our bhakti sadhana? Do you want to speak a little bit on that, maybe? Yeah, I mean, okay, so I have a lot of thoughts about this, obviously, because astrology is a part of my daily life, as is bhakti. And one of the things that's been I'll just be honest and and upfront. Um, it's been painful for me at times because I think there's two ways that, like almost like psychedelics, that people use astrology. People use it to increase their attachment to material outcomes and their anxiety about material outcomes. Mm. Understandably, we don't want that in our lives as Bach does. Right, right, right. But um, when you're an astrologer and you walk through Hare Krishna communities. I'll tell you, you will get people who will look at you almost like you're you're peddling pornography or something. There, mm. you know, it's like this real like astrology is bad. Here's the verses where Srila Prabhupada said it's bad. Um, right. and you know, like that. And that's been really it's it's really stung for me as someone who, you know, even before coming to Bhakti, who believed that astrology is not the answer, but is a part of our spiritual guidance. It's part of how we navigate the karmic world. Mm. And it, with the goal of being a, in, in a centered place, before I really knew what Krishna consciousness was, I still had that philosophy. And right. what I see now is that, again, like, uh, as devotees, it's true that Krishna sort of takes the wheel of our karma and tailors it, customizes it to us. That's something that I think our... Srila Prabhupada said, and you know, my Guru Deva said, and lots of my teachers and mentors have said over time, like when you surrender to the holy names and so forth, um, Krishna's taking the wheel. You know, your karma is still going to play out, but it's going to be through a more personal connection to Krishna. Mm. And that's that, but that doesn't mean that you don't have karma, first of all. It 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 and it doesn't mean that astrology can't help you understand. Uh, what karma is coming. And the more likely you are to understand what seasons of life you're going through, as long as it doesn't make you obsessive about them, if it's just helpful information, then you're going to more readily feel and experience the hand of Krishna in those times because you're understanding these are his laws. Now, where is he in them? Right. And, and, and that's all, that's the only, it's a fine line that we have to walk and we have to walk it with integrity. As an astrologer, I easily get sucked in from time to time about anxiety with outcomes. I mean, heck, sometimes I'll look to see if my football team is going to win or something stupid like that. You know, it's like I have to fight that that temptation. Um, but, you know, astrology can be very helpful. And let's not forget that, um, that there's a karmakanda section of the Vedas that our acharyas have also talked about and why, why that would exist in the Vedas in the first place, right? And part of it is that people will People who start understanding that the, the material universe is run by God and God's karmic laws are very subtly starting to take to God, right? They're, start, they're, very, they're very subtly starting to be like, yeah, there's a divine author behind all of this. And also one of the things that astrologers have taught for thousands of years in both the East and the West is that the more that you put uh, the divine presence or God in the center of your life, the less objectifying 
and mechanistic and deterministic these laws are and the more that you experience them as the presence, the personal touch of God in your life. That's something that astrologers in the West, let alone India, have been saying for 2000 years. So it's always wow. been something that's meant to complement our spiritual life. It's not, it, it's just how we use it. And unfortunately there can be, it can be very degraded. Right, amazingly said, wow, that's very fascinating. Amazing. All right. Um, how do you go about explaining yoga, ayahuasca, meditation to people with no context, especially hardline Christians who believe that all this is tantric and demoniac? It's a question mm. from Sagar. Well, I mean, it's just like, you know, I remember going, eventually, you know, I was on Harinam in that same plaza. <laughs> you know, like, right. Eventually, I was down there. <laughs> right, right. Uh, and so I was, and, and in that situation, I'm not, uh, even though my guru, Dave, is a great, you know, great book distributor, I yeah. am, I don't consider myself to be very good at it. Maybe I, I'm sure he would help me to get better at it, but. Book distribution is easy and fun. Easy and fun. Exactly. <laughs> but one thing that I did notice down there, just in terms of talking to people and hanging out with people, is that if people think you have an agenda, they'll bolt, you know, that's in one of the, so one of the key things is like, how do you let your heart do bring the message across and and not lead with an agenda let the let let krishna's agenda just come through your heart in in approaching people and right. i don't think that that's any different in terms of talking to people about astrology or yoga or uh, bhakti or uh, ayahuasca i i just i think even my my father growing up in the church he never believed in an, in an evangelism that uh pits believers versus non-believers or that approaches people through the lens of, of some kind of, you know, a, a evangelical agenda. Mm. But he was very successful in bringing a lot of people in the right direction because he was enthusiastic. He was, you know, he was heart centered. And so I think I picked up on some of those things and I've always just had the philosophy that like, if it comes up, it comes up. And if not, I don't have an agenda here. It's also, I think we all have to like really, I'm, I'm preaching to the choir, but we all have to just trust that like Krishna has everyone's best interest in mind. Like I think about my kids and how much I care for them and how I think no one can guide them as good as I can or protect them like I can or whatever. And the truth is that Krishna can do so infinitely better than I can. And so I just have to kind of trust that with other people and, and trust that the right opportunities will come up at the right times for talking about any of these things. Right. Great answer. When you said you said um, heart centered, you used the word uh, the phrase heart centered. I explain what you mean by that. Well, I just mean your father is was a very much speaking from the heart, and uh, we have to be more heart centered. Yeah, I mean, what I would see that the way that I guess I would translate that into like bhakti speak is, you know, it's about it's about coming from that space of loving communion with God in our hearts, you know, where we're, we're, we trust that God has everything in, in his control. We, we trust that just being our best self and being enthusiastic about our love for God without caring, well, just let God do with that. If I just come from the heart and talk about God from my heart, God will take care of the rest. Mm. I don't have to, I don't have to, you know, necessarily, I don't have to fear about whether people are getting it or not. It's just, just, let it radiate, let love of God radiate from your heart and just let the rest take care of itself. That was kind of his attitude, you know? 
Beautiful, beautiful. That that's so inspiring. I'm so inspired right now by you. I I, I love your story and I love uh, what you're about and and you're an astrologer and you're a father and it's like it's incredibly inspiring to me because those are things I'm I'm very interested in and and I, we're seeing in the comments people are are very much eating up what you're saying like you know picking out what things you've said and 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 posting it in the comments. Amazing. Um. So now. Now, you know, Ajuta Bhava Das in 2020, you are, what is your, what are your future goals or what are your, what are you about now? I would say. Well, first, let me just say thank you um, for that. That was really nice and um, makes me feel really good. And um, I also, uh, I just want to say that I've been watching your show for over a year now. And I also am really inspired by you. So my enthusiasm today is just part of being here. And, you know, I, I just, I really like what you do too. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I mean, right now, um, I'm I've you know my astrology. I, I teach uh, three three different courses in astrology: a year one, a year two, and a horary class. And that's all in ancient, like Hellenistic Greek astrology. And those courses occupy a huge amount of my time. I've got about a thousand students in all of my programs at once. So it's, it's really? yeah, we have and we have. I have a staff of um, you know. I have three staffers that are helping me all the time. We're developing curriculum, you know, so it's, it's teaching astrology is like, and, and reading for people, my clients, and then creating daily content about astrology. And the, the content that I create is always, I'm, I'm always trying to bring the, the, any interpretations of the transits, I'm always trying to bring them back to, you know, God consciousness or, something resembling you know spiritual life and why we're actually doing any of this so that's a big part of my channel and then i make um i make bhakti content as well um that i have on a private youtube channel for people like occasionally i'll do a bridge video we'll be like here's someone i'm talking to about bhakti and if you want to learn more about bhakti i have a page on my website you can go to get a free password and access an archive of bhakti talks and um, those are really young, but they've been growing because so I'm trying to kind of use my channel as a bridge for people to get into Bhakti a little bit more, connect them with good resources, stuff like that. So we're going to send this one out to your, once it's you know public or the archive or whatever is public, sure. we'll send it out for everyone to watch. And Amazing. so it's kind of those dual tracks of like Bhakti and astrology that I'm um, making through my content every day. Very nice. That's so awesome. Wow. Fascinating, incredibly fascinating. Well, we're at a, an hour and a half. I usually do that much, but um, uh, I, I, you know, again, I'd like to thank you so much for coming on. This is super fascinating. Your voice—I love your voice. I could listen to you speak all day long. <laughs> Thanks for but, but if if anyone wants to get in touch with you, I, I, I your website is nightlightastrology.com. That's right. Yeah. Okay, nightlightastrology.com. Atuta Bhava Prabhu is on Facebook as well as Atuta Bhava Das. Uh, and, and also through his website, you can get his email and whatnot and, and contact him. Uh, and, and thank you, everyone, for listening to this podcast. Uh, this was episode 37 um, with Achuta Bhava Das. Thank you, Prabhu. Appreciate it. Just stay on um, after we go live. We'll, we can talk a little more. Thank you for having me. This was great. Yeah. Thanks, everyone. Appreciate it. Bye. Bye, Krishna.